Clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm, welcome and thank you for joining us for today's program entitled Trending Now, Election 2020. Today's event is the 19th in our series, and we are extremely excited to be welcoming back for a second time Jim Messina, CEO of the Messina Group. A recording of this event will be available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series that can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce our president and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you very much, Tom, and welcome to clients of Rockefeller, to our colleagues at Rockefeller, and to other friends of Rockefeller Capital Management. And welcome to another episode in the client series that we've put on for all of you since uh, the beginning of the pandemic way back in March. More recently, we've been focused on the uh, pivotal election and elections in the U.S. As you all uh, hopefully heard last Thursday, uh, I interviewed George Walker, the chairman and CEO of Newberger Berman. George was tremendous on the range of insights that he provided, including on the election, the future of the Republican Party. I did send a note around to uh, my team the other day, and I wanted to say this before I introduce Jim and we move forward that our goal as a leadership team at Rockefeller Capital Management in bringing people as knowledgeable as Jim and George to share their insights with our clients, with our team, with friends of Rockefeller, is to provide insight and expertise that you can't get elsewhere. We're not uh, opining and, and uh, dictating this in terms of party politics or anything other than best-in-class advice and counsel for our clients. So yes, uh, Jim is a Democrat, although he uh, works the other side of the aisle, including in the UK, where he has worked with the Conservative Party. And in fact, as I move to introduce Jim here, his record, his experience, and the expertise he brings to bear is unique across the landscape. So as Tom said, Jim Messina is the chairman and CEO of the Messina Group, an organization he founded in 2013 after having run for the former President Obama his re-election campaign in 2012. Jim is one of the leading advisors and counselors to businesses and politicians around the world. He's provided advice to over 13 presidents and prime ministers on five continents. He advises some of the biggest companies in the world with uh, a, a range of uh, issues that, uh, that they face. He spent over 20 years on the political side of the equation working uh, and, uh, as chief of staff for various Senate and House offices in Capitol Hill, including for Max Baucus when he was chair of the powerful Senate Finance Committee for a long time. Jim Bree brings tremendous insight and expertise to where we are in our country at this point in time, to what happened in the election, to what will happen going forward, to what uh, uh, President-elect Biden's administration is likely to do on issues that are germane for all of our clients, and as I said, friends of Rockefeller. So with that, Jim, thank you for joining us for a second time this afternoon, and thank you for joining us so quickly after uh, the election, or uh, I'm not sure I should say after the election, after uh, last Tuesday, a week later. My pleasure, and as a client of Rockefeller, thank you for the great uh, series. Besides my two appearances, everyone has been super smart, so it's been really great to watch. Well, it's great to have you here, Jim, and I'm going to jump right in because uh, we're going to use this time really well, given uh, the front row seat, uh, and actually it's not even a seat, the front row participation that you have in things that are so important to so many. So can you start, and can we start, Jim, with the election, 
how close it was, which uh, uh, I think was a surprise uh, across uh, the Democratic Party at all levels, the notion of a blue wave not happening. What were the deciding factors? Were you surprised by the tightness in various states? Just a general overview of what you've seen last Tuesday and, and since then. Well, so thanks for the question. So yes and no was I surprised. Um, you know, I sent a uh, note out to our clients saying, I thought it was going to be closer than people think. You know, as Greg knows, I've been a long public critic of polling. Um, I went on uh, Fox News and said all polls, which I thought was a joke. Um, the headline was immediately, Messina calls for all political people to be killed. I didn't say all political people. I said all pollsters. Um, you know, what I've learned around the world in five continents, Greg, is that polling is broken kind of irreparably. Um, so I always figured it was going to be closer. I think there was, you know, a few things that that I think were super interesting about the results, which is, first of all, I mean, on the Democratic side, you know, it didn't end up being incredibly close. It's going to be about 6 million votes, which is double what Hillary got. It's going to be 308 electoral votes. Um, it was went on for a long time because of the counting. Um, but in the, the Midwestern states, I did always think it was going to go down to those states. I'm the chair of the biggest super PAC, put our money into Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, because we thought that was going to be where it really was decided. I think if you look at the actual votes, it continues to tell a story about how divided we are as a country. And a reminder for those on the, the Zoom or teams, we are the most divided country in the world in our politics. Only about eight to 10% of Americans could actually vote for both parties in the presidential election. That is in stark contrast to the other countries that we have done. In the UK, it's about 30% of people switch between the major three parties. In Spain, it's 50%. In Mexico, it's 70%. But in the US, we really are that divided. And so it was always going to be um, You know, I think some of the democratic excitement was just that excitement. That said, there were a few surprises. First of all, the gender gap um, has become a gender canyon. Uh, and the way the two genders really look at politics is incredibly different. Trump carries men by eight points. Biden carries women by 15 points. That's a 23% gap. That's a canyon, Greg. That really is redefining our politics. Age groups are exactly the same way. Trump wins seniors by five. Biden wins young voters by 24. And so, you know, that kind of change is incredibly important. You and I grew up, we're about the same age. You and I grew up in a world where Ronald Reagan made the young people in the 80s Republicans, and they still vote like that 40 years later. If the Republicans aren't able to kind of start to be more materially mattering to these young voters, you know, they're in trouble. Um, the most dividing line in American politics is now education. Uh, education is now, you know, 40 years ago it was race, 30 years ago it was gender. Now the most dividing line is education. If you are have a college education, you lean very heavily to Biden. If you were non-college educated white voter, especially, you went historically uh, to the president. And so that was incredibly interesting. One of the big surprises on election day was Latino voters. Latino voters handed Biden a presidency in some ways because of their huge support in Nevada and Arizona. Arizona was a state that Barack Obama didn't compete in either time. And now Joe Biden carried it, and it was because Mexican-Americans 
win for him historically. The Biden dream of winning Florida went away because uh, uh, Trump way overperformed with uh, Latino voters, especially Cubans, as he usually does, but crucially, um, Venezuelan voters who come out of a socialist country and are very worried about the Democrats' move towards socialism. That was true in Texas, where Democrats thought they had a chance. Um, as you and I talked about, I didn't. And a part of why I didn't is because uh, Latino voters in Texas are much more likely to be Republican because of immigration issues. And so Latino voters provided the other big surprise on Election Day uh, when, except for Mexican-Americans, they went towards the president in ways people didn't see coming. So all in all, you know, this election did not fix what is true about America, which is we are incredibly divided. And when you and I talk about what's going to happen in the future and what Biden can get done, it is a reminder to folks on the phone that politicians aren't the cause of this. They are a symptom of this, and they're acting uh, like a divided country because they represent a country that really is divided. Jim, can I ask you a question along these lines? And, and you're the expert, but this is uh, some of the armchair observation that I've been uh, uh, talking about. And I do, you know, I talk to and get input in a lot of directions. Is the country really as divided as people think? I mean, clearly a lot of the things you just said, those are spectacularly interesting numbers. I didn't realize the gap on so many levels. Uh, the, the split in the Latino vote across states and across different specific countries in Latin and South America has been much discussed. But is the country really that divided? Or do uh, a lot of people, whether they're Republican or Democrat, want the two parties to be more toward the center? And that was part of the message that, that, that comes across, that, that there were you know, higher rates of voting for President Trump and the Republican Party, because we're going to get to the Senate in a second, in part because of the nervousness of the left on the Democratic Party. And similarly, you know, th there are uh, concerns on, on a lot of people on the Republican Party too far right. Is, is the country, if, you know, when you look at the voting, could, could you conclude that, in, in fact, a big part of the populace wants to be kind of on, on you know, it might be two sides of a highway, but the, 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 uh, the lanes are next to each other. So if you're a Republican, you want right of center. If you're a Democrat, you want left of center. But the country really is more there, and, and the primary system and, and the way that we pick leaders uh, makes it hard to get there. Is, is that a potential theory, or you can shoot that out of the water for me? No, I think it is true. Here's, here's the good news. There's two pieces of good news. The good news is we just had the highest turnout since 1900. Um, which not even Greg and I were alive for, right? Just massive turnout, and that is very good. Um, the other thing is Joe Biden carried independent voters by 15 points, but independent voters marginally went to the Republicans in the Senate congressional races. And why did they do that? Because they thought Biden was going to win, and they want to divide a government. For as much as it drives everyone crazy, um, divided government is kind of what the people want because they want, to Greg's point, both parties to just work together this fighting, um, and we can talk about systemic ways to actually get that done, because um, I think it's going to be easier said than done, but and so in a bunch of these congressional races where Democrats surprisingly lost, what you see in some of the interviews afterwards is people saying, well, I knew Biden was going to hedge our bets. And, and also on the Republican side, President Trump did a spectacular job turning out his base. And his base are people who traditionally don't always vote. 
and they stayed and voted down the ticket and partially why the polls are wrong in all the congressional races, which they were spectacularly wrong for both parties, um, is that this, there was this huge Trump surge and they stayed and voted all the way down the ticket. And so, so you know, on one hand, the independents want both parties. On the other hand, the partisans think they're at war and they definitely just want their side to win. And that's going to be part of the problem with governing for both parties because they are too beholden to their bases. Yeah. So, Jim, let's talk for a second about the Senate because it, uh, you know, depending depends on which uh, race you're looking at and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, which commentators uh, uh, are going through it. Uh, and I have, uh, we have a lot of uh, uh, the Rockefeller team and clients and, and others in the great state of Georgia, which is now front and center on everybody's minds and is going to be so for the next two months. Um, is, it, uh, is it at this point, is it 50-48 with the two Georgia seats uh, in, in runoff? And, and how, how do you see those seats coming? Uh, will the Republicans hold the Senate in, in your eyes? So it's a great question. First of all, for the folks in Georgia, and I have Delta Airlines as a client, so I spent a lot of time down there. Um, you know, Georgia is now the most contested and the most swingy state in America um, for a variety of reasons that folks in Georgia know about. But, you know, how close that election was in the presidential. And now I just feel sorry for Georgia because now they're going to get two more months of negative ads. And so I think, Greg, you should allow all your Georgia staff to come move to New York for a while just to avoid all the TV ads that are going to be seen. Um, I think Republicans are favorites in both of those seats, uh, in part because, again, back to our ticket splitting, the, the president's party has lost Southern runoffs in recent memories because people don't want to send big majorities uh, for one party to Washington. And so, you know, the, the theory in Washington, at least right now, is both seats will stay Republican because Georgia voters will say, OK, we wanted Biden. We voted for Biden, but we don't want him to have a bunch of crazy lefties. So we're going to send these two Republicans. That's what the current th theory is. That's what if I had to bet a dollar and Greg knows how cheap I am, that's what I would bet today. But Democrats have this money machine called the Internet. And, you know, if you're John Ossoff or, or Raphael Warnick, you're about to get one kajillion dollars online, and that might be determinative. But as we just saw in a bunch of races for the Senate, that wasn't determinative. Money didn't matter as much as it historically did. So I think Republicans are favorites, uh, and we'll all get to watch a truck ton of negative ads. And, and uh, Jim, the, the other two races that are open, uh, you don't think they're really open. There's actually talk of the Democrat in Alaska saying he thinks he can come back. I, I don't know the, the name. And then uh, North Carolina hasn't been called yet either in the Senate. But you think those are going to the, the Republicans, so they'll be up 50-48. Yeah, I do. Um, I do a lot of work in North Carolina. Uh, I think Killis has what he needs. Um, Alaska is a state that uh, is incredibly complex, and they're, they're waiting for votes to literally be dog-sledded in from some of the communities because of the snow they got. And when you're trying to count votes and you're waiting for the dog sleds to come in, you realize you're in Alaskan politics. Um, it doesn't seem too viable um, to me, uh, but my friend and drinking partner, James Carville, told me yesterday to, to not give up on it. So, so we'll see. But I've actually done some political work uh, in Alaska, um, and I would be stunned if they could come back from the 50,000 vote deficit they're down as of this morning. 
Well, that takes us, uh, Jim, to the to President-elect uh, Biden uh, administration priorities, and and how will those be shaped? Let's just assume, given what you just described, uh, and I, I think um, given that it's you, I'll, I'll, I'll bet that that happens. I'll, I'll double the dollar. Um, the uh, let's assume a Republican Senate. Uh, what would be the the priorities that pr uh, President-elect Biden would be looking to, knowing that you know, for example, on cabinet posts he'll need the Senate approval, and you know, major legislation he's going to have a Republican Senate. So how does it shake out now? And I'm sure they're already thinking about this. Um, it's a great uh, question, and you said the most important thing, which is the cabinet. So. In 2008, I was director of personnel for the Obama-Biden transition, and I helped uh, Obama-Biden pick the cabinet. And our picks really were based on who we could get through the Senate and who we thought we could do. You know, when we were down to Geithner and Summers for Treasury, um, you know, we Obama had me take both of them in to see the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, who was my former boss. And he literally called me up after one of the things and said, I will not support Summers, I want Keitner, and that was a piece of what Obama had to do um, to think through. It's even more hard in a Senate you don't control. So right now in the, the transition, they are having to have discussions, you know, and I think Greg and I've talked about this before, the single most contested uh, cabinet position will be the Treasury Secretary. It's what both wings of the Democratic Party want desperately. And by you know, look at some of the people, some of the candidates, including Elizabeth Warren, and say, I'm not going to be able to get her through the United States Senate, even if I wanted to pick her. And, you know, could I get someone less controversial, like a Lael Brainerd, who's been confirmed by a Republican Senate before? Um, you know, does that move me? Could I get, you know, for the World Bank or for, you know, various Federal Reserve if he wants to make a change there, which he won't? Um, you know, who could I get through? And so, uh, you know, Secretary of State is another big one. All the betting money is on Susan Rice because she finished second uh, in, the, uh, in the race for VP. But I think it's very questionable whether you can get Susan Rice through the United States Senate. And so does that make Tony Blinken the favorite? So those are the things they're going to play with back and forth, as I did in 2008. And then you start looking at what your legislative agenda is going to be. A piece of it really Trump controls, because the question is, is he and McConnell and Nancy going to be able to cut a deal on stimulus? We definitely need a stimulus bill. Um, it would be better for everyone if a lame duck Congress would do it. Um, and so that's going to be the hope. That's what President Trump did for President-elect Obama. And so we didn't have to pass a bill on the very first day or the very first thing. Uh, on stimulus. But if they're unable to do that, he's going to have to do stimulus first, which would suck because the number one thing Biden wants to do is do a nonpartisan uh, bill that he can get through and continue his campaign to get Republicans. He views that as an infrastructure bill. He thinks on infrastructure, you could get the Republicans and have a big win early and pass a much needed stimulus and an infrastructure bill. And so, you know, they're going to look at that. The the Republicans holding the Senate helps him in this way because he can say to his base, hey, I can't pass a bunch of these things you want me to do. I don't have control of the Senate, but we all agree we need more jobs. And so let's go pass a stim uh, an, an infrastructure bill. 
And then he could start to work on some other bipartisan things he may be able to get done, like a Dreamer immigration bill, um, like some tech regulation, things. And so, you know, first he's going to do cabinet, and then second he's going to look and see what he has to do on stimulus. Uh, uh, Jim, one of the things that that uh, uh, President-elect Biden had talked about all along the way, and has talked about, uh, you know, since. Uh, you know, since the the results over the weekend, is um, the notion of uh, president for everybody, whether you voted for him or not. And there has been discussion of different names that he's reaching across the aisle on. I'll, I'll throw one out, and, and less focused on the specific name, but maybe, but just more getting your insight on: Will President-elect Biden pick Republicans like Mitt Romney for cabinet positions? Will he go that far? to try to create a bipartisan tone in uh, in his cabinet and his major appointments? He absolutely will pick Republicans, and I think he'll pick more than one. You know, as you know, we picked two. We did Ray LaHood, the former Republican, and we did uh, Bob Gates. Um, he'll want to go more than that. The question is whether they'll take it. Um, I think it would be genius politics to put Mitt Romney in as HHS secretary. Why, and, you know, we really did. I ran the war room to pass Obamacare. We really did base Obamacare off of Romney care in Massachusetts. It wasn't just a line I used against Romney for two years during the election. It was true. And so it would just make all the politics easier if he would do that. Why in God's name he would want that position would be one question. Um, he'd take it would be an understand. But I think Biden would be very smart to offer it. I think he'll offer you know, more than one Republican. Um, on the Democratic side, you know, I would hope he would learn from our mistakes in Obama and not appoint Democratic senators, because then you'd have special elections and you have a whole bunch of things. Um, and so I hope he doesn't do that, but I absolutely hope and think that he'll he'll put Republicans in as many as he can get. So, uh, Jim, we've got a couple of questions that have come in from clients uh, that I want to uh, uh, intersperse here. Um, one is, um, uh, and, and you'll enjoy this, um, you can take it as wherever you want, but the Electoral College uh, and the person <laughs> said uh, your personal opinion of it. So, uh, but, you know, I, I don't know whether there's, uh, uh, you know, first of all, changing it would be massive and, and, and beyond uh, any any notion. I mean, the, the, the government's divided enough trying to get agreement on that. But what, what are your views around the Electoral College uh, and, you uh, uh, you know, what What do people on both parties think of it? So it's a great question. I've changed my position on this more than a politician. Um, and I can really see both sides of it. You know, I was talking to a president of a major country who's my client last week, and I was, I was um, uh, lecturing him on how stupid his electoral system was. And he said to me, Jim, I think that anyone who's elected two presidents in your lifetime who lost the popular vote shouldn't lecture us on electoral stupidity. And I looked at him and said, that is a very fair thing, sir. Um, on one hand, I like the Electoral College because you actually compete in little states and you care as much about little states like New Hampshire and Nevada as you do New York. And I promise you that whatever hacks had my old job as presidential campaign manager, if there was no electoral college, would just park in New York and LA and Chicago and hang out with Greg and team and would never go to those states. So I think that it would be a mistake. Um, I also think that it's super good that 
you know, everyone has to go to 99 counties in, in uh, Iowa and every county in New Hampshire and actually campaign in living rooms. And I think that's a genius of the system. On the other hand, it is crazy that we continue to have elections where the country votes one way and electoral college votes the other. Um, you know, the only way you could see 12 states have passed this constitutional referendum that says um, our, our electors are going to be binded to voting how the country votes, no matter how our state votes. And it only kicks in after enough states uh, uh, pass it that have 270 electoral votes. That would be the only change. Um, New York passed it and the governor vetoed it but I think it's past 12 states currently. That is the only way you can see this happening. I still don't think it's going to happen. I still see both sides uh, of this debate. Uh, and, you know, I understand, look, in 2016, my nephew, five-year-old nephew, called me crying hysterically the morning after the election and said, but she got the most votes. I don't understand. And having to explain to the youth of America the Electoral College is a super hard thing. On the other hand, I think it's awesome that, you know, you have both presidential campaigns going to little little places in Georgia the final weekend. That's a very thoughtful answer. And it actually uh, highlights some of what the compromises were when they drafted the Constitution, as they did, with small states insisting on, uh, you know, on the Senate, where you got two seats each, and on things like Electoral College so that they weren't marginalized. I mean... Uh, so it's a great answer. It's an interesting situation, uh, given that uh, you know, it, it, with with multiple elections now with a split, it's going to stay under the microscope. That's a great answer. Um, the uh, uh, if we if we go back to the uh, president-elect Biden uh, and uh, and uh, policy and, and what uh, his administration will focus on, uh, Jim, can we focus on? Uh, uh, first, we'll do domestic on, on an issue that uh, uh, I promise you every single person on this call uh, or in any call like this is interested in. And then the second, we'll go outside the country to China and places like that. But first, um, uh, taxes, uh, tax increases, uh, new sources of revenue, as uh, politicians like to say. Uh, if we have a Democrat, if we have a Republican Senate, uh, what is likely to come out in terms of a tax bill from President-elect Biden? So it's a great question. The, the real question, and I'm kind of a fiscal moderate here, um, is whether we're actually ever going to put PAYGO back in and start paying for some of this stuff. We cannot continue to run a $12 trillion deficit long term. And so eventually we're going to have to have some version of tax and entitlement reform. That is very, very, very unlikely to happen in the first two years of any new president. Um, and so we can kind of put that aside I think it's very unlikely that a Mitch McConnell-led United States Senate um, would pass big tax bills. Um, and you know, that said, you know, on the margins, could you go get some some small pay-fors? Um, you know, as Greg noted, I used to be chief of staff to the Senate Tax Committee, so I probably could talk to you more about this than anyone cares about, except for Fleming and I. Um, but you know, you could look like for infrastructure. Could you pass a gas tax uh, in the United States Senate? Sure, Republicans voted for that a bunch of times. Um, do I think the U.S. Senate's going to pass a carbon tax? No, but you now have almost every oil company actually advocating for it, and that kind of changes the politics. Um, my my own sense is 
until we get a vaccine actually dispersed and the economy start to move here, they're not going to put PAYGO rules back. They are going to pass unpaid for stimulus bills and there won't be tax increases. So uh, I, I got a specific follow-up question from a client uh, asking about Social Security tax increases. So if you have a Republican Senate, that would seem to me like it's going to be hard to have happen at any point in time. Yeah, eventually you'll have to do entitlement reform, but there will be no Social Security tax increases until you do reform, um, because that'll be the trade, is you will trade that for, for, uh, for some for Democrats to move on some senior stuff. Um, and so, um, you know, both sides will hold those big things uh, for when we actually do entitlement reform, which someday we've got to get our stuff together and do. Yeah. So, Jim, a uh, uh, topic that I'm, I'm going to go to because I, I have a number of uh, questions that have come in on all sides of the issue, uh, many of them anonymous, um, asking about uh, the current challenge uh, by President Trump uh, and the arguments on both sides of, uh, you know, the, the votes are not uh, uh, accurate and election fraud. And uh, why don't you just walk through, as, as you see it, where we are. You know, somebody uh, sent a question in saying, what happens if, uh, if President Trump ultimately doesn't concede? What's the process? But uh, let's spend a couple of minutes on it since the country and those on this call are continuing to focus on it. Yeah, and the whole world. So right now I'm doing four presidential elections around the I guess three presidential elections around the world on two continents. And I was I got focus group results last night, and we literally can't get them to talk about their own presidential elections because they just are mesmerized by the American fight. And no one knows it or no one understands it. I had a senior member of the UK government call me this morning and said, Jim, can you explain exactly what the process is? Um, and so I think the whole world's trying to figure it out. Um, here's what, um, and I'm going to quote Fox News. I was on Fox News day before yesterday, and they were interviewing me. And at the end, you know, Brett Baer said there hasn't been a substantial uh, proven allegation here. Um, you know, there are um, DOJ last night uh, announced they were going to look into these allegations. Um, I, I think a couple things ought to happen. One, we ought to finish the count. And, you know, we're still waiting for votes in a bunch of places, including in California, where I now live, uh, where they have a bunch of ballots to count. Um, two, if there are actual things to investigate, we had to investigate them very quickly um, and see what exactly there are. So far, I have not seen anything to, um, to move any of the votes. And remember, um, even if you were to go all the way down the path and say, okay, um, these early votes, these three day votes in Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, in one of the rulings, there's a theory that Judge Alito left open whether they could revisit those. And even if they were to throw all those votes out, um, which would be unprecedented, it would mean a couple hundred thousand Americans wouldn't have their votes counted for the first time in American history. Even if you did that, and if there were some of those votes, give Trump Pennsylvania, which for my models, there aren't. But even if that were to happen, and you took Pennsylvania and gave it to Trump, there still are enough electoral votes to declare Joe Biden the president. And so we will eventually get through here. Um, I think uh, the Republican Party is attempt to, you know, and I don't blame them for this. They understand that President Trump has brought historic amounts of new voters to them. 
that are much more Trumpians than Republicans. They don't want to piss them off. They want to let the president go through all of the legal machinations he can. And that's what Mitch McConnell has said. That's what Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, has said. And that's what I would say if I was a Republican senator. But those legal machinations, he's losing them every day. And so, so there's been 10 court rulings since election day, and he's over 10. And so, you know, we'll get through some of these things. Uh, and unless DOJ is going to find uh, a bunch of things that we have not seen so far, um, it is likely that by the December 6th deadline to certify, um, we will certify. And on one hand, it looks terrible and looks horrible and makes us look like um, idiots around the world. On the other hand, we've been through this. We went all the way to the Supreme Court in 2000, and a, and a person was certified. He ended up you know, governing and getting a bunch of things done in his first term as president. So this too shall pass. I think the broader, my broader worry about this, Greg, is just that there's a whole bunch of people who just voted for the first time, and I don't want them to feel like this election was stolen because it wasn't. And we are stronger as a democracy if we have more people participate. And I just want this to be done in a way where in the end, both parties can say, we took this all the way to the logical conclusion, and it's okay, your votes counted. Um, and if that weren't to happen, if the president weren't to say to his people, it's okay, we all, we all got to go on here, I think that would damage democracy in a way that would be very troubling. Yeah, I think uh, well said, particularly on the back end. I mean, one of the things that I've been saying, George Walker said this uh, on Thursday, and frankly, we're all observing it. The, the, the record level of turnout, the record percentage of eligible voters that have voted, the active involvement, you know, I've got a 24, 22, and a 20-year-old, the active involvement of young people in this election, how much they cared, was something that I haven't seen in my lifetime. Uh, the, the magnitude of people, whether it's my parents in their 80s or my kids in their 20s, everybody that uh, is, is in a lot of orbits, including, as you said, Jim, first-time voters for both parties, uh, the level of participation has been fantastic. Let's make sure whatever happens here, we keep that level of participation and interest in this vibrant democracy, which is maybe the most important takeaway we could have here. Well said. Absolutely true. Uh, uh, I got a, 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 a question, um, Jim, from a good friend of mine who, and I'm not clear on what he's saying here, I've been back to back all day, but John Bernbeck uh, asked the following, given reports coming out late this morning that the Supreme Court is leaning towards keeping the Affordable Care Act, are you aware of that? Is that something that surprises you? Yeah, so so um, the what he's referring to uh, is the Supreme Court's hearing um, Kavanaugh and Roberts both made comments about the severability uh, of some of the pieces of the Affordable Care Act that surprised people and that made people um, think that they were leaning towards what I think in D.C. at least they were going to throw out uh, ACA and, and start again. Um, you know, as we talked about earlier, I ran the war room to pass Obamacare um, I probably will never work on a more consequential issue. And I have thought that the courts were going to uh, screw us the entire time. And I remember Jeffrey Tubin on CNN saying the Supreme Court was definitely going to strike it down the day they didn't strike it down. So I'm done trying to guess what the Supreme Courts are going to do. 
Um, I do think there is some optimism on the questions this morning. Um, this would certainly be a gift to both parties because I think we all can agree we've now had uh, 10 years of fighting about Obamacare and both parties are absolutely exhausted. Obamacare 63 times. Um, President Trump tried desperately to replace it and couldn't get his own party to do it. They're just on both parties. My friends are Republicans and Democrats are just sick of fighting about Obamacare and would like to actually go fix the economy and do some other big things. So if the Supreme Court could actually just, you know, uh, not do this, it would be a huge gift. Um, but I, I'm not going to get as excited about uh, legal interpretations this morning as some of my lefty brethren are. Excellent. That's a good answer. And uh, I'm not surprised you're completely up to speed on it. Uh, Jim, let's go to foreign policy under uh, President-elect Biden administration uh, and talk about something that uh, President Trump, I believe, got a lot of support uh, on a bipartisan basis for a lot of what he did uh, and initiated with China. Uh, what will the Biden administration do with a lot of the Trump policies in China? Will they continue some of the hardline uh uh, let's talk about uh, China first from a president-elect Biden standpoint. Yeah, I think there's this assumption, Greg, in at least D.C., and I don't know about New York, that things are going to go back to normal with China. And I promise you one thing, which is they won't. Um, part of it is just the politics. You know, both parties just competed for two years about how to be more anti-China. Um, and, you know, at one point there were more anti-China ads on TV in the Senate races and in the presidential than healthcare ads, which shows you the politics that both parties view as beating up on China. That said, I think Biden will modulate um, a little bit. And what I mean by that is there's a and in trade followers that the tariffs have not been as successful. Uh, as other things. And so I think he'll look to see what was successful on tariffs um, and whether he can use getting rid of some of the tariffs to get the Chinese to move. He will be probably even more hardline. He will want to focus more on the IP and patent stuff, especially in the tech world, um, than Trump did and be less interested in the, in the kind of tariff world. But we are still going to be in this uh, frenemy position with China um, that we have been in, and it's not going to go back. He'll do some other things that I think are super important to do. He'll get rid of some of the stupid CFIUS rules. This is a really technical thing that a bunch of your clients will care about um, and allow Chinese companies to invest in the U.S. Uh, where Trump didn't. I think that's incredibly important for my hometown of San Francisco, where I'm at now. Um, so we can partner on a bunch of technology, uh, and I think that's important. Uh, he'll lift uh, another big thing in the tech world is he'll Biden will immediately lift the H-1B visa so we can get more engineers from other countries, especially China. Those things will happen very quickly, and that'll be seen as a boon to tech. But we're not going to go back to the place where I started in my congressional career working in the U.S. Senate, and one of the first bills I ever worked on was most favored nation status for China. Those days are long, long gone. Yeah. What about, Jim, just uh, just continuing on, you mentioned uh, the tech companies uh, and the, the Trump administration. Uh, uh, you know, there was increasing focus on uh, potential antitrust and other uh, 
other actions in big tech land. Uh, what will the the, uh, the Biden administration's uh, focus be on the big tech companies? Will they pull back on that? I mean, uh, typically the, the the Democrats are more, not less assertive on that topic. But I know this is a you, you're, it's near and dear to your heart. Uh, so answer it, answer it as you can. But um, uh, big tech companies and, and a president-elect Biden administration, what will the relationship be? Yeah, I'm about to make mad half the call and make happy half the call probably. Um, but, you know, so uh, like I'll just use Google, the antitrust Google uh, deal. That'll be an interesting first case because that was brought by the Trump administration and 13 Republican state attorney generals and no Democrats. So whether Biden continues that will be an interesting um, position. Uh, the Democrats do tend to be more useful of antitrust rules. Um, there is bipartisan um, calls to reform the way we deal with tech companies. Um, the first way you'll see whether or not that is serious is a, something really arcane called Section 230, which is in the Antitrust Act of 1996, gives the major tech companies Im uh, immunity from liability for things they, they repost on their sites. This is absolutely crucial. If you don't want to make a whole bunch of trial lawyers really rich, tech companies definitely need to, to keep this. There's been bipartisan calls to reform this. The only time that Ted Cruz retweeted Elizabeth Warren was when she was going after Facebook's uh, Section 230 exemption and talked about how much he agreed. It'll be interesting to see what Congress can move forward with legislation. Um, to, to this, they will be absolutely a war tech the moment they do it. But you have both parties saying uh, they want to do it. Um, I think it's you know there's a deal to be had in what they do to reform um, 230. I think it would be a mistake to get rid of it completely because you know enriching a bunch of trial lawyers to sue the tech companies doesn't seem to me to be the best idea. But then again, I'm kind of a homer for the tech companies. Um, uh, but I think that'll be one of the big fights. I do think that you will see a Democratic uh, attorney general use antitrust um, to look at some of these deep competition issues. Um, and I think this is a place sort of publicly here, this is a place where tech has screwed up their politics. Um, you know, when I came into the White House, tech was the one industry in the U.S. that wasn't controversial. Both parties loved it and thought it was future years later both parties love wailing away on big tech and it's partially because of the way they've handled the discussion about where the future jobs are coming from and the way they've handled kind of their their own pr about what tech is and so i think tech is in for some rough days i'm skeptical that you know we went through when greg and i were younger five years of doj investigations on microsoft and in the end you know, they settled and it didn't really curtail their business. Um, and I think that some of the look into like the Google stuff on search, you know, innovation just moves so much faster than antitrust does. I'm skeptical about whether you can actually really change things, but I think we're about to find out. Uh, very, very interesting. Uh, 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 a follow-up question on the, on the business side from my colleague, uh, our colleague, Mike Mishanya. When counseling your firm's clients, what do you see as the biggest potential challenges and opportunities for the business community under a Biden administration? Yes. 
companies does accidental or intentional regulation help or stifle innovation? And so much of you know all you guys do in the tech world, in the financial world, are innovate new things, and they run into these to these challenges of government. The governments sometimes don't even mean, but the rules are written at a very different time. You know, I started my company when the former Uber CEO called me the day after the Obama election and said, help me, you know, I'm being regulated in Europe and I didn't even know Europe could regulate me. Um, and, and I think Biden is going to get that immediately um, in some of these things, because if you look at the big innovations that are happening right now, healthcare would be the single biggest one. And, you know, I think there's been bipartisan consensus that right now the FDA is not um, – the rules are not written very well to do some of these fast-track things like a vaccine. And so the Trump administration, one thing I think they did really well is to do tracks to get vaccines, medical devices, and other things done. Um, can we use that to look at the patent process? Can we use that to look at regulation? Can we use that to look at the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau and say, are there ways to fast-track some of these other things? It's taking too long to get things approved. And this is the problem our European brethren have. When you look at the huge European uh, bureaucracies that companies have to deal with. And I think that we all need to work bipartisanly with the new administration in both parties. To see how do we get some of these things done faster and quicker? You'll see that in the healthcare space. You'll see that in the alternative energy space. You'll certainly see that in fintech, um, and it's certainly great for my business and Greg's business um, because you'll all need to call us. Um, but I also think there's opportunities for real change in a really nonpartisan way um, to really look at some of these things and say, can we invent a better mousetrap? Yeah. Um, Jim, uh, another question that came in from a client worth asking. Uh, Pfizer came out with a big announcement yesterday, uh, less than a week after the election, on the uh, the effectiveness of their trials uh, of the vaccine, with the number uh, 90% or greater, you know, frankly being right up there with the uh, effectiveness of a lot of other vaccines that have been around a long time. Frankly, uh, you know, two parts of this: one, the uh, the effectiveness and the and the leading status of American companies in uh, in the biopharma space and how spectacular it is. You know, this virus is a 2020 event and, uh, you know, eight or nine months after everybody jumps in, you, you might have a vaccine that effective, fantastic. But the question I have for you is the political one. Had that announcement come out a week or two weeks earlier, does that have any impact on the election in your eyes? No, I don't think it did, because by the end, no one believed, neither party believed the other party on the vaccine and and what what was happening. And so I, I don't think it would have been materially effective. In fact, I'm glad it didn't, just as an American, because part of what we need to do is put kind of the politics aside on healthcare and on the vaccine and the coronavirus and just do whatever the science tells us to do. And we now have a very good fast-track process for that vaccine and any other ones. And now the, the question is going to be both approval and, more importantly, implementation and getting this stuff actually out. Yeah. Um, 
So as we start to look out, uh, Jim, and and in the political land, that happens literally instantaneously, right? Uh, you know, if if as uh, President-elect Biden moves forward, people on both parties start thinking about uh, 2024, frankly 2022, but definitely 2024. So one of the the unique aspects of, of this election is that a you know president-elect Biden would be uh, is going to be 78 when he's inaugurated. He would be 82 in 2024. So from the standpoint of the administration elect and the Democratic Party, how are they likely to play that? And this is a tough one, so you can finesse it as you need to. But how are they likely to play that? Does he serve, you know, most of the term? And you know, at some point, he would either have to say second term. And I, I've heard, I don't know if he said it directly, but it's a, you know, uh, it's he's going to be one term. Uh, but I don't know that that's been confirmed. When would he uh, pass the baton? How, how will that work? It's been a long time in American presidential history. You'll know, I'm sure. Uh, I, I can't, I don't know. I didn't think about it before the question. Since we've been in this position where he's sitting, I guess it's Johnson, right? Uh, Johnson right. himself out. But even that's different because it wasn't necessarily a handoff to the vice president. Uh, so anyway, how's it going to work uh, as we get into the president-elect Biden term in, in 21 and 22 and 23? What happens uh, over the course of those years? So it's a great question. Um, you know, he didn't say it uh, during the campaign, and there would have been a political advantage to saying it. Um, and some people wanted him to say it because swing voters wanted to hear him say it, and he wouldn't do it. And the reason why he wouldn't do it is because the moment he does it, he's a lame duck, and he literally can't do it. And his sister, who's his best advisor and supporter, said this morning he's definitely going to run for re-election, and they will continue to say that um, until the moment he doesn't. Uh, I think the assessment in Washington is he, he likely won't. Um, and he will be the transitional president he talked about. Um, but you won't see it um, on our side. On the other side, um, you know, I think it's why you see no major Republicans come out and say, hey, Trump, get out, because they're all playing politics, too. They all think they're running for president in 2024, and they don't want to piss Trump off. And so you're going to have everyone be incredibly careful with what they say about the president as he walks out of the door here. So if we if we push that a little bit, and I'm going to get to the Republican side because it's of interest to people already. Um, if President-elect Biden doesn't run again, uh, would there be Democrats that would run against in a some kind of primary or in a primary season against Vice President Harris? Uh, and secondly, uh, relatedly, and it's a little bit from from left field. President Trump is obviously under the Constitution allowed to run again and win again for one term. Uh, would he run uh, in your eyes ever again in 2024? When he would, by the way, be 78, I believe, in 2024. Yeah, I vote on the Trump thing. And, you know, it is, I just think that's what you got to assume. On our side, um, Kamala Harris would definitely not clear a primary. Um, people would not worry about running against her. Um, and, and I know this because, you know, Joe Biden was the presumptive frontrunner ahead in all the polls, and 24 credible Democratic candidates ran against him in the primaries in, in 2016. 
And if you kind of look at some early surveys, she wouldn't be leading. Um, you know, there would be some excitement about a variety of other people. Um, so, so I think we'd have a full-throated uh, primary uh, uh, in 2024 if the president were to say he's not going to run for re-election. Uh, Jim, one of the uh, questions that's come in is around um, uh, COVID and, and President uh, President-elect Biden and. and uh, He's named, uh, I guess, a, a task force to, to lead the response. This is a topic that, uh, like almost everything in the United States, seems to have become uh, a political topic with, uh, you know, support for broader restrictions from an economic and movement standpoint uh, being more something uh, on the left and uh, support for uh, uh, businesses and society staying more open being something more on the right, as epitomized by certainly President Trump, who has been very clear on it. Uh, where is the uh, you know, president-elect Biden, and where is the, the the administration and this new COVID task force likely to go? Uh, you know, it's it's mid-January when they get the keys, or January 20th. But where are they likely to go in terms of policy from a COVID standpoint? Yeah. So the most important thing actually isn't the science, it's the PR. And the COVID test course has got to convince the country uh, that all they're doing is calling balls and strikes and being straight up on the science. Um, because it makes the, the kind of murderer's row of choices much easier. Um, because as you've seen, Greg, and everyone's following this, the numbers have spiked again. And they're going to continue to spike just because of the season we're in. Put away the politics. We're in flu season. And so this thing's going to spike. And so the very first question Joe Biden's going to have to face um, is, you know, do you shut it down again? Do, or do you mandate national masks? And, you know, why would you do that? And right now, he's doing exactly what he should do just by trying to appeal to people's patriotism and saying, hey, we're all Americans. We're all in this together. Just wear a mask. That's the first step. Um, but the most important thing is just see if he can, and I think this is a ridiculously hard challenge, but see if he can get the country to kind of just agree to the facts and to your point, put aside their personal political beliefs and just say, okay, just straight up, here's what the science says. And now what do we do about it? And, and then, you know, then the choices become clearer. Um, you know, obviously these choices get super easier if we can fast track a vaccine. If we can fast track a vaccine, what they said yesterday is for the first at least six months and probably nine months, the only people who are going to get it are frontline healthcare workers. And so, you know, that's kind of all they can produce at the very beginning. So we're going to have to have a discussion you know, in the in the winter when he walks into office about what we do. And and these there are no good choices. What we know is what Europe's doing right now and what China, right? Europe and some of my clients are shutting their countries down again because they have to be able to bend the curves. But there's a huge economic cost to this. And and so there aren't any great choices here. And the most important thing is getting the science right and getting to actually know what we know and what we don't know. Jim, a question that came in, which is related to what we just were talking about, 
uh, from uh, Sharon Schmidt says the following, and, it, and I wanna tie it into the transition here, and this, this uh, will head toward a wrap here. Uh, she says Trump officials have instructed the GSA to not formally identify President-elect Biden as the winner of the 2020 election. No surprise there, given uh, the legal challenges. This could push back Mr. Biden's selection of cabinet officials, and he is unable to receive intelligence briefings and fundings. What do you think will be the outcome of this, and do you believe it will significantly disrupt the presidential transition? What, will we start to see cooperation across issues like uh, COVID and intelligence and things like that? while uh, the legal challenges play themselves out? I mean, how is it going to work? I mean, you know, is the president-elect Biden working kind of on the sidelines away from a lot of what, what, what the apparatus of government is until it's solved? Or is there behind the scenes, you know, some, some coordination that, frankly, probably the American people would like to see? Jim, did we lose you? Yeah, so um, here, here's what I would say about this. This is absolutely a huge problem. And the reason why it's such a huge problem is that there is some just block and tackling of transitions that you have to do. And the most important thing is FBI background checks. And so all the background checks need to be done before he picks a cabinet. And remember that both, every president in our lifetime has had cabinet picks blow up during transition because of stuff that the background check didn't find. And so you're not gonna pick a cabinet until you can get the FBI to do a background check. And if that can't start, that's super hard. You're also gonna have to background check all of your senior officials um, to get uh, national security clearances before they can even step in the door. And Greg talked about the intelligence briefings and the COVID briefings. There's one other crucial briefing that he can't get right now, which may be the most important briefing. And that is this economic, daily economic briefing. It was in this briefing that started three days after we won, where literally the Bush people flew out to Chicago and briefed President-elect Obama and told him markets might not open on Friday or on Monday, and that they needed him and, and Bush together to issue a statement saying they do stimulus, or else briefings either. So it is a super problem. Um, it is, it, you know, President everyone should fall to us, could another. He was unbelievably helpful. They were there every step of the way. Their GSA person called half an hour after NBC declared Barack Obama the winner and said, here's the keys, here's the checkbook. You're now, you're now in, in transition. President Trump uh, every day to see whatever we needed. In fact, a couple of days before he left office, he pulled the entire Obama senior staff in the, the Oval Office and said to us, advice anyone ever gave us which is every day you come into this office, you're not a Democrat, you're not a Republican, you're an American, and you have to act like it. And your job is to defend the United States. And the other thing is just realize that every day problems get to the White House that no one else in government or the world can solve. And they only get to you if they're completely broken. So understand that, understand that what you do matters. And that kind of help and advice was just incredibly important 
uh, and it's what Jim, I'm losing you here, but uh, we're, we're uh, uh, thank you very much. We're, we're at the end of the hour. Uh, I want to thank Jim Messina for uh, his tremendous insights here, uh, firsthand uh, knowledge of what's going on uh, really across the landscape, uh, way beyond uh, the, uh, the, the uh, incoming Biden administration and, and across the range of issues that are so important for everybody in this country right now. Uh, this is, as I said, something that we look to do for our clients and our Rockefeller Capital Management team. Uh, we do want to bring insight across the landscape, uh, and we try to balance that uh, against the backdrop of uh, politics and party, etc. We want to bring cutting-edge insight all the time. So as always, I'm going to end with a, a quotation. I, I have a little bit of a back and forth here. Uh, many of you will be familiar with this. Uh, but I go back to Benjamin Franklin, uh, and frankly, a number of the questions that came through here and a lot of the discourse in the country now uh, will make this uh, Franklin uh, quotation resonate. And it's become quite repeated and famous over time. And actually, the woman who first made the statement to him uh, is also quite well known, and there's a longer story behind this, and she was quite an interesting uh, American uh, in the uh, late 18th century. So when Franklin comes out of the Constitutional Convention uh, in uh, 1787, uh, I believe, 88, he's asked by a woman who passes him, doctor, uh, have we got a republic or a monarchy? And Franklin famously says, a republic if you can keep it. And Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch uh, recently published a book saying, a republic if you can keep it. Uh, I think Franklin was, uh, was prescient on so many different uh, uh, levels and on so many different topics uh, in his lifetime. Uh, but this was uh, a, uh, a spot-on response uh, uh, to the question. Um, and my rejoinder today in 2020, despite all the challenges that we face uh, as a country, uh, and 2020 has highlighted so many, uh, the turnout in the election, the participation of Americans, we can keep it. Uh, it's a great country and it's going to move forward. So I want to thank Jim Messina again for being here today. Thank you to all of our clients at Rockefeller Capital Management and our team. All the best for the rest of the day, uh, the week, as we head uh, into uh, the final weeks and months of 2020. Take care.